Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. BJJ Mental Models episode 40. We're middle-aged. Yeah, we made it to number 40. Yeah. What is a podcast midlife crisis like? I think I'm having one right now. <laughs> BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent approach. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan, your taint master. I thought Rob Bernacki was the taint master. That's right. I'm his taint you're like apprentice. A, <laughs> you're like a taint professor. <laughs> Uh, you know, we should have a race to see how quickly we get to the taint stuff in every episode. Yeah. Just eventually, we're just going to be like the BJJ Mental Models taint cast. Yeah. Get the inside channel. <laughs> so, Matt, um, now that you've had time to listen to it, what do you think of our music? <laughs> this guy won't let me listen to it. I'm sure it's really great, but I asked him right before we recorded, can I listen to it? He said no. So Yeah. Well... Whatever. You know, we're recording a few episodes in batches. Matt hasn't heard it yet, but I figured this is like Christmas. You know, I'm just going to create the anticipation. So one day he's going to get to run home and download the latest episode and he's going to hear the music. God. And I hope presumably like he's going to watch something. <laughs> well, hey, we can always change it. Uh, so, oh, yeah, again, one more plug. Our music was from one of our listeners, goes by the name of Enterprise, enterprise.bandcamp.com, Enterprise spelled with a Z or a Z. Well, one uh, time at Bandcamp. One time at Bandcamp. I don't actually really understand what all of these music services are. I know there's Bandcamp and I know there's SoundCloud, but I don't really know what they all do and why they're important. And I, I kind of feel this way about most like social type websites. I see these things and I'm just thinking, I don't get what you are. I mean, like TikTok, I know is a big thing right now. I have no idea what it is. I haven't heard of any of these things. It's so a, I'm it's just a along for the ride right now. <laughs> if, if someone really young and hip out there can explain to us like what TikTok is and if BJJ mental models should be on TikTok, I'd appreciate it. I still haven't figured out Snapchat. So we're, I think, a few generations behind right now. So today we're going to talk about inversion. Or at least I'm going to talk about inversion. Matt isn't sure what we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going in completely blind. Steve's going to, again, quarterback this one. So, so I'll just hang on. So something I wanted to talk about, uh, both in the context of jujitsu, uh, but also in the context of other areas of strategy that can come up at work, at home in your life, is the idea of inversion. Now, when we're grappling... Inversion has a very specific meaning. It means breakdance fighting, basically, right? You're, you're going upside down. And when you look, the first time that I saw people inverting, I thought, like, what is this ridiculous nonsense? Why would you do this? It's not practical for a real fight, all of, all of the stuff that everyone says. But more than anything, inversion represents a particular way of thinking, right? When I first saw inversion, Matt, when I first started training, 
if someone was passing your guard, I was always taught, oh, well, you frame and you hip escape and that's basically it. And what happens if you frame and you hip escape and it doesn't work? Tough, your guard got passed, right? That, that was basically your option. It's like, you can you can hip escape and that's kind of it. Um, inversion is a relatively new idea, which is instead of trying to fight the energy coming directly at you, you basically turn your entire body upside down so the energy isn't coming at you in a meaningful direction anymore. That's basically what inversion is, right? You're Instead of trying to move directly into the fight, you're going around the fight. Um, now, in jiu-jitsu, you see this in very specific applications, right? Uh, my Really, when I invert, most of the time, it's not because I want to go into an inverted game, but I use it a lot as a guard retention tool. So, you know, I, I think this is probably when most people first got exposed to inversion is someone's trying to pass your guard. You don't feel like you're going to be able to hip escape in time. You feel like you've lost the moment. So rather than just um, giving up and, and having your opponent take side control, you do like a half grand B or a full grand B and you try to go to turtle or recover. Right. When I was also taught, you know, I was always taught from the beginning, you never turn away from your opponent in bottom side control. I was always silly rules. Yeah, I, I was always taught don't ever do that. You're going to get your back taken. But now that's like probably one of the go-to escapes for getting out of side control is you invert away and try to get to turtle or, or you know manage to get back to guard. So it's this is an example of where there was very conventional thinking about how things should be done, and then some crazy person decided to literally turn the idea upside down. Yeah. Um, now that's a very specific example, but this is actually a strategy that you can use all over your life uh, to break out of existing thought patterns and to attack things from a different angle. Most of the time, it just comes down to identifying when you're stuck and when you're doing things that aren't working and then kind of wondering, what if I tried to do things literally the opposite? Uh, for older people like ourselves, you know, this kind of reminds me of the Seinfeld episode. I was where, just going to say that. Where George Costanza realizes his whole life is a joke and he just decides, what if I did literally the opposite of everything I normally do and his life becomes awesome? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is something that I've, I mean, I've definitely used in jujitsu and off the mats where eventually at some point I realized, hey, I've, I've hit a plateau. What I'm doing is kind of hit the peak of what it's ever going to do. What happens if I literally try and attack things backwards? And I find usually that opens up a whole new avenue of strategies and moves that might have I might not even have been thinking about before. Now, mm. Matt here, from a jujitsu standpoint, literally wrote the, well, not the book, but the DVD on inversion. So yeah. I'd, I'd be curious, Matt, from your perspective, from a jujitsu standpoint to know, like, what are your thoughts on inversion and where does it fit into into the game because I, I mean I know that you kind of jokingly say oh you know inversion it's not for everyone it doesn't work but I think it really does have a place for almost everybody I mean even for like really really big guys love to go on about how they can't invert but I mean yeah. you can surely at guys. least do a half grand B like that's not going to yeah. kill you yeah I think I think um, to to have any amount of skill nowadays against some of these guys that are really good at guard passing you have to be able to at least do a half grand B or be able to know how to invert I think I think that's something that when we were coming up, Steve, a lot of people were neglecting actually teaching proper inversions. Um, of course, I, I have my Barambolo Crab Ride DVD. And like I mentioned in the last episode, I've been inverting a lot less actually now, but uh, in terms of offense. But as a guard retention movement, it's definitely one of the most, first of all, one of the most common movements you're going to come across. And it's it's critical to understand how to how to invert in order to maintain your guard. Um, and you actually see it in the animal kingdom all the time. Cats fighting, 
armadillos fighting. Cats, cats invented <laughs> inversion. Have you, have you seen that video of those two? I think they're armadillos or anteaters, and they're just barambolowing each other repeatedly. <laughs> Pretty, it's pretty awesome. So I, I haven't seen that, but I did see like a, a GIF on Reddit of just like an armadillo like curling up into their shell, and it's bizarre to watch because they like they curl up into a ball before they hit the ground. So they like curl up, and then they're a floating ball, and then they just go boop, and they just land on the ground. It looks really, really weird. Yeah. So animals, some animals naturally know jujitsu. Yeah. Cats are definitely <laughs> one of them. Armadillos, but yeah. um, but not but uh, not inverting with understanding uh, understanding of good alignment is probably you know one, one of the ways you could de- either get your guard passed easily or you're gonna hurt your neck or whatever it's very important when you're inverting to understand okay how do i use my arms and my you know my my feet as as base and you know how, how do i keep my spine safe while i'm doing this how do i not roll onto my neck these are i mean realistically these should be covered in fundamentals classes when you're you know you're learning how to do a backward shoulder roll or or a tornado roll or whatever um and of course flexibility will help not everyone can touch their toes to the mat but you know as a long-term goal you should definitely not have the attitude like i can't do this i'm old and you know i'm old and fat i I can't do it well yeah if you you think that then you're not going to be able to ever do it right so something to just work on incrementally and just uh you know keep trying to gain that flexibility yeah yeah and inverting doesn't always mean that you have to break dance on your neck i mean in a lot of cases it just means doing the opposite of what you would normally do and i gave the example earlier of how if you're trying to hip escape when your opponent has side control on you and you just you know they've just got a tight grip on you they're checking your motion you just cannot hip escape away enough to actually make space you can always go the other way right you can turtle away from them And as long as you're smart about it, it's actually a relatively safe approach to do. So sometimes if you're getting really stuck, and this is something that I can relate to, and a lot of students ask me about this. They say, Steve, I feel like I've hit a plateau. I I feel like everyone's getting better except me, and I don't know what to do. A lot of the time, if you feel like you're not advancing, especially if there's a, a particular instance of something that you just feel like you're stuck on, and this one thing is a massive problem, it's always worth trying to go the other way instead, or to try something completely unconventional uh, that maybe goes against common logic. I mean, something that I've personally been doing a lot. I was finding, for example, that against much more athletic or really big, strong people, it just was not really feasible that I was going to be able to sweep them. Like it just against a guy who has monster base, it just isn't possible that I'm going to be able to get like a traditional sweep or a takedown. So that's when I started thinking of, you know, well, maybe rather than focusing on traditional stuff like that, I would go more for single leg and X guard and try to get underneath the guy. Um, But even going beyond that now, what I've been playing with is going to turtle. And the reason why I do that is because in the context of jujitsu, you know, you can, there are a lot of different ways to wind up on top. Now, yeah, theoretically, you want to get two points for your takedown or your sweep. But sometimes rather than just forcing a sweep, what I'll do is I'll go to turtle. I will scooch underneath my opponent to the point where they think that, that they have back mount on me, but I don't let them get any control. And then I just roll over and I wind up on top. Like it's kind of a... So I'm literally kind of like approaching the situation backwards. Um, it's not maybe 
the best strategy for all situations. But I find that sometimes in like by taking things and attacking them upside down from ways that you normally wouldn't solve the problem, um, it can give you a, a much better advantage because you have new tools in your toolbox and maybe you're thinking of things in a way that your opponent isn't. Uh, another example that I always give, you know, a lot of people, especially smaller people, they're always concerned about getting stuck on the bottom. I hear this where there are people always say, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in side control and people find it very, very demoralizing. But one thing that I kind of came to realize is against a superior opponent, especially when it comes down to size and strength, it's often kind of inevitable that you're going to wind up getting smashed to some degree. And if you just give up the fight because you got smashed, you're not going to do very well against bigger, stronger people. So, you know, we've talked in the past about the importance of training with larger opponents. I have found that when I train with larger opponents, I have to go in with a different strategy. I'm not necessarily going in expecting that I'm going to get my sweep or my takedown and then just play a top game. I know there's a good chance that isn't going to happen. So I have to be ready to have a game plan and a funnel set up to go right from when I hit bottom side control. And I have a lot of strategies from there where I wind up back on top. I find that sometimes against a big guy, it's not always that easy to actually sweep them. But if they have a dominant position like mount, it's actually relatively easy to wind up on top from there. Now, that's not ideal because, you know, you've given up points, but at the end of the day, over a long fight, I would rather wind up on top than get stuck on the bottom forever. And I, I think that it's important to understand that in bad positions, sometimes the fight is just beginning. Um, so it, there are lots of different creative ways that you can take like a, a very difficult situation and turn it upside down and attack things from a different angle. I mean, Sakuraba was famous for that, where basically he would let guys get to his back because he had a whole game plan for how to like Kimura guys from there and wind up on top. Um, again, not, not for everybody, but you want to encourage yourself to think outside of existing thought patterns. So that, that's really what, in my mind, when I say inversion, that's what I mean. Like attacking a problem from the opposite angle. Yeah. And, and for those listening, inverting should not be done on your neck. It should actually be done on your shoulders, your shoulder blades. and Common mistake. And yeah. also for your elbows uh, acting as posts. So don't think that just because they're upside down that you're trying to put pressure on your neck. You're definitely not trying to do that. Please try and save your neck. Because uh, after a few decades of grappling, you're going to accrue a lot of injuries. And yeah. you'd want to save your neck and your back. Yeah. So, um, and actually, something that um, Rob Bernacki talked about is the spine frame. Matt, I think you've probably heard him mention this. This is a very particular technique that you can do when someone is trying to pass your guard. And it's basically when the idea is when you invert... You use your, you know, you're trying to grand be away from your opponent or then grand be back into him. You basically use your spine as a frame. Yeah. So rather than relying on your arms or your legs to push your opponent away, you get on your shoulder and then you straighten your back and your spine acts as a frame. And that allows you to invert without getting your neck collapsed, which is really the, the common mistake that most people make when they invert is they wind up like basically doing it on top of their neck. This, if you haven't seen this before, I highly recommend like Googling spine frame or looking at his video on the BJJ Core Formula DVDs because he's got a really good clip about using your spine as a frame to block the guard pass. And it's a great example of inversion in action. Yeah, like I think you're referring to his Grant, just him demonstrating the Gramby role. Um, in the guard retention app that he has, he has uh, a variety of different guard retention movements and the Gramby is one of them. And he explains about how the spine is kind of the biggest frame in your body. You're basically going upside down and pointing your ass bone right at the guy, but your feet are in base, which allows you to actually maintain that position. Uh, if your feet aren't in base with the ground, then 
basically your legs are just levers that can be chucked to the side. So yeah. it's not a it's not a position that you want to spend a lot of time in, but it's definitely a unnecessary tool to practice and and to be able to use to get your guard back. So yeah, and you have to assess this uh, very quickly on the spot when someone is about to pass your guard. You have to decide: is it better? to face him and try to hip escape or is it better to frame and try to look away which usually means a, a, like a grandy roll and that is a decision that you have to make very very quickly i yeah. find that where the the spine frame and the grandy roll prove useful is if i've lost the moment and it's too late to effectively hip escape that's when i find going the other way is very helpful and the idea of kind of like straightening your spine and using that as a frame it makes it a lot easier to invert in that manner because then you're you know, you don't have to be as flexible and bendy. And I find your neck is not at the same level of risk. Mm-hmm. Cool. Another thing about inversion, you were talking about how like sometimes in life when you're trying to, you're trying to, whatever it is, you're trying to accomplish something or get better at something. And then you sort of hit a plateau and you go a completely different direction. I, can, I think this kind of applies to like, uh, I, I, when I was first starting my school, I was looking for ways that I could market my gym and I was trying like, you know, I would I would hire guys to bring in leads and things like that. And I was I was putting ads out there. And the truth is, is that none of it really worked. Like I, even when I hired someone to bring in ads I'm, or to bring in leads, I might get like 20 leads in a month. But mm-hmm. I'd either get no conversions or maybe one would convert and it just wouldn't even end up being worth it. So like so <laughs> instead of focusing on how much advertising I could do. I just focused on how I could be a better instructor. I started doing things more organic type growth options. Like I would, I would offer a referral program. (coughs) Uh, We would, we would go roll in the park and just Mm -hmm. like, just basically get people walking by to see us and things like that. And sometimes, sometimes exhausting other options, whether you have your own business or whether you're trying to learn different aspects of jujitsu or whatever it is. um, Sometimes the most, obvious obvious seeming ways to to be successful aren't exactly the best ways yeah uh, and and you know i was i was kind of blinded i at that time i didn't really know what would work what would bring in people uh and through my experience i found that pretty much any advertising done on paper has been completely useless mm-hmm. uh nobody is looking at paper anymore everyone's on their screens and things like that and uh and and in general advertising to get people in to do jujitsu it's 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 for me, I haven't had good success with it. So, you know, I, the, the most obvious thing that I saw would be, okay, hire a marketer, pay for advertising, do this, do this. Uh, and, and really in the end, the best thing that I could have done for my business is just focus on being a good instructor, focus on putting any money that I made back into the school and grow it from the ground up. And basically, uh, make my product so good that the word of mouth was the best way that I would get leads in. And and that is the best way that I, I found generates the most business. So, yeah. you know, sometimes the most obvious route or, or the thing that you think will work, um, it isn't off. It doesn't actually convert and it's not the best way. And it, if you really have to have like that, that awareness and that mindfulness to know when something works and when something doesn't. And that's, you know, if you, if I were to just keep, keep hiring a marketer, month after month after month, I'd be spending thousands of dollars for, you know, and putting a lot of time into it because you have to chase the leads too. Like they, they'll put the leads in front of you, but you have to chase them. They, it's not like they're just going to, you, you know, you're, the guy's not setting up appointments for them or anything. You have to be the one to call them. You basically just get contact info and it, it takes a lot of time. Like it's actually kind of like a full-time job to be emailing people, calling people and, 
at the end of the day, if I if I wasn't like, okay, you know what, this isn't working, I'm going to try something else completely, uh, I could still be wasting time and money and whatever. So long run, my moral of the story, you're trying to build a business, try and build it from the ground up, try and make your product as best as it possibly can, make sure you're using passion and uh, uh, excellence to grow it rather than marketing tactics and things that, you know, they seem really effective, but at the end of the day, uh, possibly a paper tiger in terms of how, how effective they are. The problem with conventional common sense approaches is that they're conventional and common, right? If something is conventional and you're told to do it because that's what everyone is doing, the problem is that everyone is doing it. So you are immediately competing in the worst possible case, right? You know, we've, we talked in the past about the path of least resistance. You want, you want to compete where it's easy, not where it's hard. Now I'm not saying avoiding challenge, but I'm saying that when you go and you take on a challenge, you want to win in the easiest possible way. And the issue with something like traditional advertisement is everyone else is doing it. So if you go down that road, you immediately are competing for attention with every other person who's taking the obvious path, whereas sometimes the non-obvious path is better. You know, as in, in the professional field, for example, I generally tell people like, you know, the thing you want to avoid having to do if possible is applying for jobs, like just by applying to the ad. Because if you do that, you're taking the, the main road, the road most traveled, where everyone else is doing the same thing. And no matter how good your resume is, it's going to be one resume in a bucket of possibly hundreds, maybe thousands. It's going to be really hard to stand out, even if you are the, the best person. The question is, how can you find uh, an easier way to achieve your goal rather than competing in the most pos difficult possible way? Uh, an example that I can give, uh, my wife is a professional writer. And this is a very hard field to get into. If anyone has experience writing novels, like getting an agent and then getting published is extremely rare. Very, very hard to do. Very competitive market. And my wife had success because instead of going through the conventional methods of like trying to, you know, go through all of the application channels and trying to find an agent the normal way, she just basically found out who these people were and wound up taking them out for beer. And one thing led to another. And next thing you knew, she had like seven books published. Yeah. So, and that's kind Kind of the the general idea here is if everyone is going down one way because common sense and conventional wisdom tell you to do that what you can be sure of is that going down that way is going to be the hardest possible path in the in the context of jujitsu that's one of the reasons why i think the leg lock game became so popular is because no one was focusing on it for a long time mm -hmm. in fact not only were people not focusing on it, but there was a lot of dogma about leg locks. Yeah. They were dirty. They were low-class techniques. They don't work, they, as we all know. Yeah, they don't work. So, but you know, so because no one was training that, people realized there is a there's a wedge here. You know, I can get in there, and if I become an expert in this, it's like a cheat code. Yeah. And that's that's the path of least resistance. You want to win where it's easy. And only now, years and years and years after the leg lock game started getting popular, only now are people starting to kind of catch up. So. If you started really getting into leg locks like seven years ago, you had a le you had an edge for a long, long, long time. And if you're looking to kind of break through to the next level, or if you feel like you're getting stuck, whether it be in jujitsu or in life, sometimes inverting and looking from things in the opposite way that you normally would is actually a really good strategy because it takes you off of the conventional path and gives you other openings. Yeah, it's really interesting how like uh, Danaher credits Dean Lister for sort of igniting his 
uh, enlightenment of leg locks attacking the lower half, right? Like we all know the the, the saying, why would you ignore 50% of the body or whatever? Um, and when Danaher was on Rogan's podcast, he talks about how jujitsu traditionally is passing the legs, moving up towards the head. But he inverted the concept by developing a system where now his students are becoming experts at also moving down towards the legs as yeah, well. Yeah, so yeah. instead of uh, instead of trying to pass the guard, you're actually trying to attack the legs, which is an example of inversion in itself and proved mm-hmm. extremely, uh, extremely effective against, you know, like if we, if we were to look at like a few years ago when Dan, when like Tonin and Gar- Gordon Ryan and Eddie Cummings and all these guys are like just starting to come up, like they looked unstoppable in matches with these unbelievable leg locks. And it's because, you know, Dan and her basically, structured the system in such a way where you didn't have to move towards the head you could move towards the leg then you throw in all these very technical very new age style breaking mechanic concepts that even guys like dean lister didn't have and they're far more effective and 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 their finishing rates were really high so another example of how you take a a, a, a classic problem like take jujitsu for example passing the guard and then move it the other direction move towards the legs and having a lot of success with that strategy. exactly you know the conventional wisdom is your legs are the first line of defense and you have to get past the legs before you can do anything but an inverted approach tells you the opposite. You know, the end goal then is the legs. And and what Danaher has done is a perfect example of inversion in action. And I mean, Danaher doesn't compete, right? Like he's basically like Professor X, both in terms of how he looks and talks and also in <laughs> terms of cripple. Yeah. <laughs> and all, but also in terms of like, um, you know, what he's done. Um, that's a great example of where someone just through the power of inversion has completely changed the game here from my professional life. An example of this, you know, I, for those who don't know, I work in digital media and, you know, over the past decade or so, we have seen a massive disruption. It used to be that if you wanted to create media, like create a, create video, you basically had to go through this traditional process of, you know, creating a pilot and pitching a show and getting a network on board and then getting on TV. And now like people have literally inverted because of technology like YouTube, people can skip that whole process completely. And it's at the point now where, you know, people are able to get famous first and then sometimes getting the network and stuff comes afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting how sometimes an upside down approach and it, it can completely change the game. Software, YouTube again is a great example, but a lot of software is a perfect example of this where sometimes just by inverting expectations, you can open up a, a whole new market. I mean, I remember when um, smartphones started ditching the physical keyboard. To me, that seemed crazy, you know, because... For those who are old, you probably remember back in the 2000s when, yeah, you'd have a phone with like actual buttons and it was awesome. And you thought, how could anything be better than this? And now we've got these phones with no buttons and somehow it's faster and more convenient. You know, it's an example of where someone subverted everyone's expectations and found found a new way forward that no one else saw just because people were blind to that possibility. Um, I like inversion as a strategy because even dumb, unathletic people like myself can use inversion, right? Uh, uh, there's where I kind of got... Wait, are you talking about jujitsu now? Or you in, talking- no, in, in life. Like oh, okay. there's, you know, you don't have to be like 
freaking Elon Musk to be and be like this absolute massive visionary to be amazing at anything. You don't you don't have to be like some ma- massively talented grappler. Through inversion, sometimes you can find holes that just other people didn't even know were there. Uh, the place where I first kind of encountered this, I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast, but there's this really great blog slash podcast called Farnham Street. And they're basically all about mental models. Like if you like this kind of stuff that we do, but you want to learn more about it just in a global context, that's all these guys do. And they talk about inversion as a mental model. And one of the things that they basically say is that um, inversion is great because it allows you to avoid st- avoid stupidity. Like basically, you ca- by looking Looking at things backward, it allows you to really understand the problem. And what they say is that avoiding stupidity is easier than seeking brilliance. And this is this is often generally true, right? If everyone is so blind to something that they're doing things incredibly stupidly, and you can find a smarter way to do it that no one else has even noticed, you don't have to be the best athlete in the room. You don't have to be a genius, but you can get a competitive advantage that is way ahead of everybody. And I think Danaher is a great example of that, right? A, a non-competition guy who was able to completely change the game and is more respected than most competitive grapplers simply because he used inverted thinking. Yeah. And could you could almost say that inversion is almost, it could be expressed as thinking outside the box. In many it, ways. It's exactly what it is, but it's a, it's a particular strategy for thinking outside the box. The problem with thinking outside the box is everyone tells you to do it, but like, what That's the fuck does true. that mean? Yeah, like it's a, a vague thing. Yeah. But like, if, if I could think outside the box, then I'd have all the ideas that no one else had. And exactly. could, you know, like, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So, I mean, the way that a good way to describe this, uh, Charlie Munger, actually, who's a Warren Buffett's business partner, um, basically, he's famous for the quote, all I want to know is where I'm going to die. So I'll never go there, which is basically a great example of inversion, right? Like rather than trying to be totally brilliant, just identify what the problem is you're trying to avoid and work backwards. Um, and in jujitsu, this is such a great strategy for showing up weaknesses. And, and you know, we've talked talked about Matt in the past about targeted training. Yeah. That's an example of inversion, right? Yeah. If you want to work on your back mount, the best way to do it is to give up your back, yeah. right? And if you are, if during t- training, you refuse to give up your back because you know it's a bad position, well, you're never going to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you've just got to throw yourself into that bad position so that you can work from there. And you might actually, by doing so, be able to develop strategies that you otherwise never would have thought of. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, the Sakuraba strategy is a great example of, you know, this guy took something that was considered to be totally unheard of, and then he was able to actually turn it into an offensive weapon, which is to give up your back. Sounds crazy, but he did it. Yeah, like targeted sparring. And for those who are familiar with uh, Rob Bernanke's teaching, like he calls it fucker jujitsu, which is basically like a a form of targeted sparring, but you're adding certain handicaps or, or certain features that allow one person to really maximize their repetitions in the position is a really um it's kind of like like i don't think targeted sparring is a new concept i think that's been around for a long time but i think that adding handicaps or like for example someone's not allowed to grab make grips they can only do guard retention movements and frame it's a really good way to uh to take something like targeted sparring and then sort of revitalize it and add new features to get maximum benefit out of it right away so if it's you know definitely check out bjjconcepts.net and and the you know rob bernacki stuff i'm pretty sure he's got some videos on youtube as well that are free Mm -hmm. um to just see some examples of target sparring and and how fuck your jujitsu can really sort of change the way that you drill it's almost like it's almost like live drilling, which yeah. is which is also if you follow John Thomas, who's a really high level black belt, he's got an awesome Instagram page. He talks a lot about, you know, 
the most conventional way of drilling, at least when I was training, would be like, you know, do the leg drag pass a hundred times. Uh, and just just accrue rep- repetitions that way. But what he does is he he's not really a fan of that. And I know Keenan's also spoken to this as well because, yes, you're doing these repetitions, and yes, yeah, there's some value to that. But you're not gaining, uh, you're not programming predictable reactions that your opponent will give you. Whereas exactly, if you if you, if you add a live um, a live element to that, then all of a sudden now you're also programming yourself to to recognize and to be able to defeat predictable reactions given by your partner. So, yeah, like, you know, when you train, sometimes when you're drilling a position, sometimes the the first goal is let your opponent do this move just so they can get comfortable doing it. But then after a few reps, okay, now don't let them do it, right? Or add 50% resistance. Now add 70% resistance. So you give people the opportunity to start drilling, but in a realistic context, because I agree the problem with traditional drilling is it's not realistic. The beauty of jujitsu is you can train a martial art in a fully realistic environment with resistance. So if all of your drilling is completely devoid of resistance, you're going to find that you're not going to get a lot out of it. Um, This is, uh, I think, the source of a lot of frustration for new people because they can drill a technique a hundred times and they feel like they're doing great when they're drilling, but then as soon as it comes to sparring, they just can't make it work. Mm -hmm. And I think this is an example of where it all comes down to understanding that everything changes when there is resistance. And it's not just about knowing the technique. It's about knowing what to do when different types of resistance are put forth. This comes back to predictable responses, right? When your opponent gives you a predictable response, how can you quickly and easily transition to something new, right? Rather than just trying to force an issue that isn't there. Yeah. And I I think the, I'll just share an experience that I think kind of hammers that home is, you know, a lot of people, they, they get to like blue, purple, possibly even higher ranks. And then they say, you know, I'm hitting a plateau. Like you, you told, you told me earlier that, uh, people come up to you and say, Hey, I hit a plateau. It's like, okay, well, have you been learning jujitsu in terms of like moves or, and techniques, or, or are you actually thinking, you know, what do you know about alignment? What do you know about frames, levers, wedges, frame, uh, you know, hooks, clamps, all the, like, do you understand the mechanisms used in jujitsu? And do you understand how to keep your body in good physical alignment? Or are you just trying to do moves? For me, when I was a purple belt, I learned, you know, I, I got, I, I got to a decent level of purple belt, but like on the world stage, really, I was getting smashed by other purple belts um, until I was introduced to Rob Bernacki and he showed me all of the alignment stuff, which was really taking what I love, jujitsu, and totally inverting it into a, learning it in a, in a completely different way. Yeah. And when I started looking at it from a, um, a, a biomechanical, physical point, uh, uh, point, point of view, it totally re reach uh it basically reprogrammed the way that I grapple and it forced me to now apply all these new concepts into what I already did, which was, you know, I know how to do an arm bar from guard, I know how to I know how to play spider guard, at least I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um but then once I once I took the stuff I already knew and I added completely different uh points of view by adding the alignment concepts and all the all the all the physical mechanic concepts, it made my game way more potent because it just, it was a completely different thing. So, you know, if, if, if you're still learning in moves um, and you think that that's the only way to learn jujitsu and you, you don't have that ability to think maybe there's another way that I can learn this, right? Um, obviously people that have heard this podcast, I'm sure 
know about alignment already and have if heard not invert back to episode one yeah we, we literally <laughs> mention it every episode so it's kind of kind of our thing but yeah but no that that's a great point one of the things that i found problematic about the traditional way to teach jujitsu or really any martial art is it's very bottom up which is, and by that i mean you, you you show up to class and you're given the move of the day it's like here's how you do an arm bar from guard right and then you drill that and you drill that 20 times and then there's like 15 minutes of sparring and then you go home and you don't really get anything out of it because all of the stuff you drilled doesn't work in reality, right? Um, that's a very bottom-up approach. The hope is if you drill these individual moves one by one without any context, then maybe one day you'll have this flash of insight and you'll be able to put it together and understand what's actually happening. Whereas I, I think what Rob has done and hopefully what we do is an example of inverting that. Whereas rather than doing bottom up, we're trying to do top down, which is we're coming in and we're saying, here are the big grand ideas that tie everything together. Now map these down to the actual techniques that your instructor is showing you. Mm -hmm. When he shows you how to do an arm bar from guard, understand how all of these big ideas that we've talked about map down to these individual specific things. And hopefully, if you understand that, it's going to make it easier to know what your opponent is likely to do and how to react on the fly if something unpredictable happens, right? That's really the goal here. So that's an example of inverted thinking as well. Yeah. Like, for, ex for example, let's say I like the armbar from guard. It was one of my favorite moves coming up. Still one of my favorite moves. I love the armbar from guard. I can hit it sometimes, but a lot of the time I am getting stacked or I'm finding that my opponent is able to yank their arm out. So... On first approach, I'm going, you know, at first glance, I'm, I'm putting my opponent in the arm bar and I'm trying to hyperextend their arm. Now, how can I take something like a, the alignment concept and apply it to the arm bar to make it more effective? Well, and I know that if I have my opponent's arm in the arm bar, I need to break their posture structure and base. So not only am I trying to hyperextend their arm, I need to think about how am I going to off balance them, off balance them, usually by hooking their leg or activating a lever that will break their base. And also uh, breaking their posture is one of the main things. Like when I teach arm bars to my student, I always tell them that, hey, you're not just trying to like hyperextend their arm. You need to use your legs as wedges behind your opponent's head so that they literally have broken posture and can't pull their arm out. So in a way, when I teach arm bars, bridging into the arm bar is kind of the last thing I teach. I actually teach more how to finish with your legs and how to how to apply wedges around their shoulder and head to be able to give you the the control necessary to break the arm, not not, not just hyperextending the arm. Yeah, my preferred way to do arm bars used to be to like try to get the arm bar and then extend and course it didn't work i was not very good at arm bars but then i kind of inverted that approach and now i don't try to get the arm bar what i try to do is basically demoralize my opponent by breaking their alignment so bad that eventually their arm is just there and they can't get it back and now i get arm bars all the yeah. time right because rather than focusing on the arm bar i've inverted the approach mm -hmm. and i focus just on destroying my opponent's alignment so badly that eventually this arm just pops up in front of my face and they can't get it back and that's it yeah or or to, you know you could use it to get up on top like like here's another example of inversion is uh throughout my brown belt years and up until now i've been really focusing on leg locks 
um, from the basically the you know the month that I got my brown belt, I really decided I actually lost a match to Matt Bagshaw. I got ankle locked really bad, uh, and um, he's he's really good at ankle locks. From that day, I decided okay, I have to get really good at leg locks now. This has kind of lit a fire under my ass, and then I started becoming good at leg locks. I really practiced heel hooks, obviously with Professor Rob, and they were working really great for me. Then a few years fly by and Danaher starts releasing all his secrets. Of course, Rob drops his modern leg lock formula and people start really understanding how leg locks work. And now leg locks are becoming very difficult to, to finish. And I find that, um, you know, more so even in the gi, but it, even in no gi competition, I'm having issues finishing these leg locks. So I'm like, man, like I just, I can't finish leg locks. No matter how good my, my, my offense is, my conversion rate keeps falling down. And I, I don't think I'm getting worse at leg locks. I think I'm actually getting better at them. It's just that my opponents are understanding more what I'm trying to do and they're able to stop my um, defense and they slip out and then I get nowhere. So instead of thinking, okay, how can I finish leg locks? I'm thinking more, how can I use leg locks to improve my position? So I know that if I attack a leg lock, you know, my opponent is usually going to have to at least respect it. And in that moment that they respect it, I'll either be able to, I'll either get back exposure while they're escaping, or I'll be able to use it to come up on top and sweep. So I've actually now using, especially in an IBJJF setting, but just in sparring in general and, you know, as an application on, on the whole like in competition, I try to use leg locks now to improve position mm-hmm. and finishing once i took the idea of of actually finishing the submission kind of out of the picture i was able to take uh attacks that i really was comfortable with leg locks and use them for a whole different application that result in positional dominance so you know i kind of take the idea of like okay i want to rip this guy's leg off and now i'm inverting the idea to turning it into something that's still uh it's still productive but is a completely different use yeah basically you've everyone else has kind of shored up that one hole but now you're using that as an entryway into a completely different strategy that they probably aren't expecting i've we've talked about this before i found this to be pr- incredibly useful as well the idea of using a leg lock as a threat that your opponent must respond to and then while they're busy dealing with that you use that to sweep or to advance position it's a super super useful strategy and you can do that with really almost any kind of like threat. You can do that on top body threats as well. It doesn't have to be a, a leg lock. I mean, I I personally do this a lot from uh, choke threats. You know, I'll threaten like a guillotine. I know I'm never going to get it, and, but that's fine because I know that my opponent must defend it. So now that his hands are occupied, I can kind of move on to other things or take the back. And it's very hard for your opponent to, you know, they, they can't move their hands if you're attacking a guillotine. They must keep their hands in front of their face. So that opens up a lot of movement opportunities around the rest of their body. Yeah, I also I also went through a stint at brown belt where I'd really try to uh, in the gi I would try and get leg locks, which is as you know very difficult. And I tr- I really tried in competition to make that happen. A lot of the time I'd get in trouble uh, just because I was trying to funnel my game into achieving a leg lock or even funnel my game into like getting a barambolo specifically. It was creating like a a tunnel vision effect um, and because I wanted it so bad and I was trying to get that, that was my goal is to make that work in competition. I would actually end up sometimes out of alignment or get, you know, get getting stacked for like five minutes at a time and really frustrating way to lose a match because, you know, you, you, the match finishes and maybe, maybe you didn't get past, maybe you did, but you're like, man, I didn't get to accomplish what I wanted to do. Um, my, my best tool didn't work. And I, and I constantly had to go back to the drawing board, but now like, 
at black belt level now, I'm at, like I mentioned in the last episode, I'm really trying to simplify my game with the addition of the lapel guards, which is obviously not simple, but it's it's um it's a new layer of guard, and I'm trying to get back to the more classical types of open guards that I once played without forcing things like barambolos and leg locks. And as a result, my game's a lot more simpler and I'm getting a lot more sweeps just by playing these traditional positions. And of course, trying to get to my mount position and things like that using uh, pressure passing rather than trying to do this fancy upside down stuff constantly. And and I use the barambolo and the crab ride and leg locks kind of more opportunistically now Mm -hmm. rather than as the main focus of my strategy and as a result I've been a lot more effective as a competitor matches are a lot closer I I don't get passed as much and and yeah just generally more success overall looking at it from uh you know going back to the basics and inversion and inverting my my modern approach so you inverted and then you inverted again so you're basically standing back upright again Basically, (laughs) just basically what jujitsu is, is sit down and stand up as fast as you can. That's a great example of myopia, right? Where you have a goal that is so focused that you're not really looking at other opportunities. But as soon as you start looking at those other opportunities, you realize that they yield a lot more fruit than your original plan. In a lot of ways, myopia seems almost like the opposite of inversion. Like you're so focused on something that you cannot consider the other opportunities that are around you, which may be better for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, for me, I've been through the experience of hitting a plateau and feeling like I'm just not advancing or getting better. At at Brown Belt especially, for a long time, I felt like, man, I'm just doing the same thing over and over again, and I'm not getting better. And and more than anything, that also made jujitsu a lot less fun because it kind of fell into a routine. And one of the things I like about jujitsu is that it's dynamic and it, it changes. And I kind of felt like I was just going through the motions and doing the same thing. And I was, I mean, I was having success, like tapping people and stuff, but I didn't feel like I was getting better. Um, and it, Really, I, I kind of realized at the end of the day, the reason why that was, was because I'd become dependent on this game that I always played. There were a series of funnels and techniques I always used, and that was basically all I used. And every time I tried something new, it, of course, it wouldn't work because it was something I was just trying for the first time. And I'd get demoralized and just go back to my normal game plan. So one day I decided to invert my game plan. And I just said, okay, these moves that I always do, I'm banning them. I'm not doing them anymore. And I got my ass kicked repeatedly for about a month because I didn't have anything I would do that would work. But eventually I rebuilt my game from the ground up. And then you can start adding those old moves back in and create a more dynamic package. But I find like if you feel like you're hitting a plateau, sometimes that's a good strategy to break you out of your, your funk is identify that probably the reason why you're plateauing is because you're doing the same things over and over again. Remove those things invest in loss and accept the fact that you're going to get destroyed for a probably an extended period of time but then eventually you can rebuild a new game fill it you're forced to fill in those holes of knowledge that you had because you've taken away your crutches and then you can re-add those crutches back in later if you want right yeah like an example of inversion could be you know you always want to take the easy roles or you don't want to challenge yourself or you train with the same people or whatever but sometimes i I guess an example of inversion could be like seeking out the hardest roles you can get or yeah yeah, or traveling to train or even competing or whatever like the heading heading towards difficulty and towards challenge a lot of the time can be some of the most beneficial experiences for you so that could be a way of inverting your approach as well if you're someone that is just content to roll with the white belts or someone who's content to um you know take the easy route or avoid the hard rolls uh you know invest in loss and and uh go for the hard rolls challenge yourself allow yourself to get 
to feel the struggle and to get tapped out. Yeah, I, I firmly... It's the best way to get better. I firmly believe that one of the best things you can do to improve your game is to seek out the biggest, baddest guy or girl in your gym and just insist on sparring with them. Even if you're giving up like 100 pounds, you'll be amazed what you can eventually get comfortable against, right? Uh, we just I just sent out an email today about pointers for dealing with like superior opponents, especially in terms of size. And really, the ultimate advice is... If you want to learn how to how to fight giants, you've got to go and fight giants. Like the only way to actually do it is to train it. You're not going to be able to train against white belts your own size and then suddenly get good at dealing with black belts who have 100 pounds on you. If you want to learn to fight those guys, you've got to go fight those guys. And you've got to accept the fact that you might have to go through years of just, <laughs> just getting destroyed. But those are the experiences that you're going to learn a lot more from. And yeah, that's, that is an example of inversion because um, human nature is to seek comfort and to seek our tribe. And one of the things that's great about jujitsu is you make a lot of friends. But the problem is a lot of the time you want to train with your friends, right? I mean, if I walk into the gym and there's one guy that I know and 10 guys that I've never met before, I'm probably going to want to roll with the guy that I know. Um, but eventually you realize that's actually a destructive mindset for your own growth. I mean, it's I guess it's good for your friendship with that one person, but it denies you the opportunity to meet new people, to get exposed to new people's games, um, to, to learn more from others. And you definitely want to avoid the situation where you are dodging challenging roles. That's really the worst thing that you can do in jujitsu. And, I, you know, again, I, I get it. It sucks when you get your ass kicked in class and everyone looks at you and they, they fully see that you got your ass kicked in class. But look, honestly, if you're going to go against someone who's 100 pounds more than or heavier than you, everyone's going to expect you to yeah. get your ass kicked. So you might as well just go in there and get that and maybe surprise some people. Yeah. Another way I've, I've sort of inverted my approach is... Um, well, now that I'm getting, now that I'm 31, I've realized that, you know, and, and I'm doing this You've inverted your age. You're old now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I realize that, you know, the body breaks down after a decade of the sport and it's going to continue to break down. So one thing I've done, my, my whole approach up until brown belt, actually pretty much up until black belt was, you know, the Marcelo Garcia approach, which is if you want to get better at jujitsu, just do jujitsu and you don't need to supplement your training in any other way. More, more mat time equals better jujitsu. And for, for over a decade, this was my approach. Like I, I basically didn't lift weights. I played hockey, but just basically for fun and, and for, for a cardiovascular aspect, but mostly just for fun. And now, um, after my, my, my knee injury, which I'm, I'm doing very well, uh, with, is I've totally t taken on sort of the role of doing strength and conditioning and, and uh, cardiovascular training on the Aerodyne bike and things like that. And it's, I've really seen positive benefits, not just in my cardio, but, but the way that my, uh, my knees are, are stronger. And, and um, you know, I, I actually plan on writing an article about like strength conditioning or CrossFit as an application to jujitsu and how it's helped me. Um, but, but I, now I'm at the point where I think that, you know, if you're not supplementing your training with, with something else, then you're almost missing an opportunity to, you know, become a better athlete, to add longevity to your career. Um, I've mentioned before in previous episodes about how I feel like doing strength and conditioning and physio and prehab is kind of like investing money in the bank for the long term. And, and if, if jujitsu is your career, then it definitely is. Um, and I want to roll until I'm, you know, 50, 60, whatever. Definitely I applying those, those, uh, 
physical activities as as a sub, uh, supplementing my training as well as jujitsu is a really uh, it's impacted me not as a not only as a competitor but just as an athlete in general and I know it's going to add health to my life so I kind of took my old approach and threw it out the window and said you know what I think I actually do need to do my body a favor and 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 start thinking about the future because if I don't I'm going to get injured again and it's just going to keep happening over and over yeah it's this is actually something that a listener wrote in and suggested we talk about as a mental model although they weren't talking so much about the physical sense but it still applies uh, there's a term called interleaving which basically means when you take things from different disciplines and kind of combine them together and you see this a lot in jujitsu. You, I mean, obviously the most common example is people who swear up and down that yoga makes their jujitsu better. Uh, you know, but also some people will tell you things like dance make jujitsu better because it helps you work on your balance. Basically, the process of taking things from other disciplines and kind of combining them together, you could do this a lot mentally as well, right? This is a great way to learn. Interleaving is an awesome approach to learn or to build a business. I mean, if you look at companies like Airbnb or Uber, all they're doing is they're taking ideas from different places and combining them together. It's like we're taking a taxi and we're taking like a delivery service and we're kind of combining it together. Or we're taking, you know, in the case of Airbnb, it's like, okay, instead of going to a hotel, we're just taking like the idea of sharing your, your house or sharing your apartment and we're combining that with like a hotel. So they're kind of like combining different ideas and they're using your phone and your technology to deliver it instead of old ways of doing things like, mm. with a, like through a cell phone. I mean... If you told people 10 years ago that there would be this whole thriving business of people like renting out their couches and it would be putting hotels out of business, <laughs> people wouldn't believe you. But you look at some of these things where people have just taken little good ideas at, from different disciplines and merged them together and you look at what they've come up with and it's amazing how much you can change the world. And even at a micro level, just for yourself, this is a great approach for training your body and your mind, just supplementing things and pulling in wisdom from other domains. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, it keeps you sharp and exposes you to, to new methods. I think one of the reasons why probably you see so much physical benefit out of this is because even for a sport as dynamic as jujitsu, if you do the same things over and over and over, your body adapts and eventually you fall into routines. And honestly, jujitsu is good at some things for your body, but it takes a toll elsewhere. So you can balance that out through supplementing in different ways. And I think, yeah, to your point, it's very important to understand what jujitsu doesn't give you and fill in the and fill in the blanks. Like again, I think that's why you see yoga offered as a supplement so much for jujitsu. Yeah. Just the benefits of stretching combined with the kind of marathon intensity activity that jujitsu has. Yeah, I I I know people who are like you know, they have back pain or, or whatever they, Oh, I'm going to my Cairo or whatever. And I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, you're going to your Cairo. But like, if you think that your chiropractor is going to give you the, the holistic solution, then I think you're off base. Like, I think you need to also not, you know, if it, I, I personally haven't had great experiences with chiropractors and I know people that also haven't, but I know it works for some people. Um, I just think that, you know, if you're going to use uh, a chiropractor, you should probably also be, you know, doing the exercises that will actually strengthen the area as well maybe some muscle release so like looking at it from different points of view and not just relying on like one service like a chiropractor to fix your back it's probably it's probably better to actually put the work in and strengthen up your muscles and you know stretch of course i don't think enough people are stretching as well so yeah yeah definitely definitely cool well i think that was actually a good chat matt oh i think matt wants a bathroom break okay we're gonna go pee pee we're gonna let this play out oh god I know you guys always appreciate it when Matt takes a bathroom break. <laughs>
This is really quality content. He closed the door. That's a good sign. Matt, how long are you going to be in there? Okay, I'll pause this. Okay, we're back. So much better. Matt, why is it that you're always the one who needs to take a bathroom break in the middle of the podcast and it's never me? I don't know. Smaller bladder, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> I'm very hydrated. Yeah, I know. We, we drink a lot of water and coffee during this podcast, if it isn't obvious. Um, yeah, so back on the topic of inversion, maybe we can just tie this up. Like, this is a great strategy for real life because I think all of us have been there in situations where we just get frustrated and we feel like we're just going on, you know, we're running on the hamster wheel of life and we're not getting ahead. I mean, I personally felt this all the time and it's tremendously frustrating. And I think that it, that often helps to just take the George Costanza approach and, you know, just try something that you normally never would. I, I can think of a lot of examples uh, or stories of where people have done this. I read this book by Grant Cardone, who's like a really famous sales guy. And he was talking about how, you know, he would totally spam the hell out of his mailing list or, or, or social media. He would post tons of tons and tons of messages on social media to the point where his staff were telling him that's not proper conduct for social media. People are going to unsubscribe. They're going to unfollow you because you're spamming them. And his response was, you know what? I'm just going to double down. And he would just give them more. And what winds up happening if you do that sometimes is you wind, you know, you're going against what a lot of people tell you you should do, but the people who stay with you are going to be like super fans and they're going to get super duper duper invested. And I mean, that's an approach that I personally try to do. I mean, if we have, you know, we have a lot of people on our mailing list and if people unsubscribe, I kind of take that as a thank you sometimes because I don't want to be sending messages to people who don't want to hear from us. I want people who are excited to get the new episode of BJJ Mental Models or our newsletter or whatever whatever. And those are the people who we can interact the best with. And, you know, hopefully you learn the most from us and we learn the most from you. I don't want people who are casually engaged, right? We want it to be a real community. That's an example of inversion in action in business. Inversion can also apply in a parenting situation, right? I mean, I find personally, the, and when I look at people with their kids, the worst thing you can do when your toddler is screaming or yelling at you is to get angry or yeah. scream or yell back at them. And that's often your natural response. But sometimes the most effective response is empathy, right? To, to de-escalate and to acknowledge that they're upset and to talk about those feelings and to tell them it's okay to be upset uh, because it gets their guard down. It gets them back on your side. And you eventually become empathetic and you realize that your toddler doesn't want to be this way. They just can't control their emotions. Yeah. They actually cannot do it yet. So sometimes rather than just like falling into your, you know, your standard way of thinking, your standard way of living, if you feel like you're stuck in a, in a process that's not working, take a step back and try doing something that is different from what you normally would. Yeah. Parenting involves a lot of jujitsu, a lot of yeah. mental jujitsu. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. It's a, a lot of not attacking the problem head on, but kind of like using yeah. levers and going around it. Yeah. Like for example, my daughter, she would have this thing where she was waking up multiple times a night and it's pretty frustrating when your daughter wakes you up at like two in the morning, four in the morning, six in the morning, and, and, you know, you're constantly getting interrupted and it's easy to just get mad and, and, and get angry about it. But one of the things we found is really great is something called a grow clock, which is basically a clock that is, uh, it's, it's, it's either a blue moon or a, an orange sun, right? And when, when the timer goes off and she's out, quote, allowed to wake up, an orange sun comes up. So rather than getting frustrated and angry when she wakes me up at 2 a.m., I remind her, hey, the, you know, the grow clock isn't, isn't orange yet. And then she, re you know, you start to develop, uh, 
sort of an um uh, a, a reaction mechanism where she if she wakes up she looks at it and she goes oh yeah this it's not time to wake up yet and then at the way to hammer it home is we get we start to sort of establish a reward system so if she has five consecutive nights where she stays in bed until the orange sun glow comes up then we give her an ice cream and if she has 10 consecutive nights then we you know we take her to the aquarium or we take her to uh like a, a Chuck E. cheese or whatever the aquarium is rad by the way Nah, I disagree. I don't like the aquarium. Really? Yeah, I don't like it. For some reason, my wife loves taking my kid there, but God, hate the aquarium. I love the aquarium. There's like jellyfish and like sea otters and there's a dolphin. <sighs> oh, man. Wow. Whatever. Huh. But well, anyways. Write in and tell us your thoughts on aquariums. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah, awesome example when you're parenting, Steve, is just like, you know, a lot of the time, your your initial reaction when your kid is presenting with you you presenting you with a problem, there's usually a better reaction to give, and it really takes uh, looking outside the box or asking other parents about their experience. That's how we figured out, found out about the grow clock. Or of course, you could just Google it, which is basically what everyone does, and, and generate ideas. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's a great example because instead of getting angry at your kid or um, you know or punishing them, what you did was you gave them information that they can use to help do things the right way, yeah. right? It would be very easy to go in and scream and yell at your kid or to cave into pressure, yeah. but instead you've given them information that they can use. Or, or a classic example is I've seen kids in my TOTS class, they come in and as soon as something bumps them, they, they break down and cry and they look to their mom or whatever. And, and what's happened is these kids fall down at home and then the mom will be, oh, or, I don't want to be sexist. The mom, the parent will be like, oh, are you okay? And make a big fuss out yeah. of it. And what, what it ends up doing, you know, it's a natural reaction as a parent to to be concerned about your child when they fall down and get hurt but what you're actually doing is is creating a trigger for them that they can get attention when they fall down they'll Mm -hmm. immediately have a parent who's worried about them shows emotion and makes a big deal about it and checks on them and so they have this trigger where now okay i know that i can get get mom or dad to uh to to ooh and ah over me if i fall down so i'm just going to keep falling down and getting attention when sometimes the best thing to do is to just ignore the kid when if your kid falls down and you know that they're just you know they're playing it up try and break that cycle by you know either ignoring it or going about it a whole different way and sometimes being being ultra concerned and and very uh you know overbearing isn't exactly the best way it'll only create bad habits yeah this is something that i've heard uh is a bad thing to do which is to basically swoop in and protect your kid because it teaches learned helplessness right they they get trained to come crying to mommy and daddy because mommy and daddy will fix it and it's not that they're trying to be difficult it's that you have trained them to do that now uh, i am not going to claim i am super dad or anything but i have found quite the contrary yeah uh, yeah i leave my kid unsupervised (laughs) for days at a time i have found that what has worked well for us is rather than teaching our kid or rather than treating our our toddler like a toddler I treat her like an adult. I treat her just like I would anybody else. I respect her opinion. I talk to her. We negotiate. We talk about what we want and what we don't want. And I found as a result, she's actually the easiest kid in the world. Now, I don't know if that's just luck on my part or not, but 
I feel like by kind of like building a respectful relationship with my child where she feels heard and we compromise, it makes it a lot easier to deal with her on a day-to-day basis. Much easier than it probably would be if I just yelled and screamed and, you know, met tantrums with tantrums. Yeah. So I think that's an example of inversion where, you know, rather than treating your kid the way that a, a kid is stereotypically treated, you treat them like, a, you, you treat them respectfully like you would someone your own age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely, it, for all the parents out there and young parents out there you definitely got to jujitsu your kids both physically and mentally yeah we've talked in the past about the importance of the body triangle for molars i mean <laughs> i yeah we've, we've got this new thing now where my daughter really does not want to have her teeth brushed and so i i i don't body triangle her so much but i do kind of like i mean i want to say the closest thing i could describe it to is like broken kesegatame where you've got like you know the near arm <laughs> trapped and the far arm trapped yeah. um so it, it's tricky though because like how do you trap both arms while still brushing the teeth this is my current challenge i prefer a rear senkaku yeah. <laughs> trap one head and one arm it's very well, effective the benefit to that position is you can always rib crush if nothing else works right yeah, yeah. very easy to rib crush a two-year-old yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> this has been a good talk about inversion. Uh, just to recap the mental models we talked about today, inversion, uh, basically the art of looking at a problem backwards or upside down. If you are stuck on a hamster wheel and you feel like you just are on a plateau that you cannot break, I suggest trying inversion. Look at things from a different angle. Do the opposite of what you would normally do. You'll probably be surprised because by going against what conventionally works, often a lot of the time you realize that other approaches are more successful than anyone thought they would be. We talked about the path of least resistance. Uh, Generally, it's easier to, to win a fight the easy way versus the hard way. One of the good things about inversion is it helps you identify where there may actually be easier solutions to your problem. We talked about predictable responses, uh, the art of understanding what your opponent is likely to do and pivoting off of that rather than trying to force something that isn't working, understanding what the likely responses are going to be and then moving directly on to those. We talked about myopia. Um, In a lot of ways, you could maybe consider this to be the opposite of inversion. Myopia is tunnel vision where you are so focused on one goal that you are blind to considering other options. We talked about investing in loss, meaning understanding that in order to be good at something, you have to spend a lot of time being bad at it first. You've got to be willing to lose and put in those L's in order to get to the point where you become proficient at any new skill. And we talked about interleaving, the art of taking knowledge from many different disciplines and combining them into something new. It's a fantastic method for learning, for idea creation, but it can also work in terms of putting together a physical routine that works for your training. Matt has discussed about examples where he's applied stretching, for example, to his routine. And I think everyone has heard the stories of yoga and how beneficial that can be for jujitsu. Matt, I got a question if you want to go into it. Let's hit it. This is kind of a big and complicated one, but uh, I'm going to go into it here. Uh, starts off, I absolutely love your podcast. Thanks so much for all the great insight. Um, by the way, basically any email you send us that starts like that, we're probably going to read. So <laughs> yeah, just and only up. those. Yeah, and only that part. <laughs> Uh, goes on to say, I have a question, you guys. I have trained in jiu-jitsu for two years, and I love it. The last... Su- oh, wait. This is the staff infection guy again. I'm reading the wrong comment here. Sorry. I got a different one. Okay. Should I've been listening... that out or... No, it's fine. We'll give that guy a separate plug. That was a good question. Right. Okay. Here's the real question. 
I've been listening to all your podcasts. I've watched all BJJ Formula series. I've got the Leg Lock Formula series, which feels a bit over my head at the moment, admittedly, and watched only the first set, and I've watched all the core concept modules, and I'm working my way through the 101 modules on BJJconcepts.net. Wow. Yeah, you, my friend, are what in the business we call a whale. <laughs> you, you have bought basically everything possible. And it's all Rob Bernanke. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. So you we, hear that, Rob? Yeah, so we, we've you made... You owe me, you bastard. We have made zero dollars out of yeah. this, but Matt's instructor is probably made a pretty penny. So he goes on to say, that's obviously a ton of material and a lot of knowledge to digest. I'm at a point in the videos where I know my cup is full and I'm not able to absorb much more first without getting comfortable identifying and applying the core concepts on the mats. So how do I go about doing that when I'm rolling in class? What should I focus my game plan on? How do I start applying these concepts to my training sessions? I've been trying to simply think, okay, tonight when I roll, I'm going to focus on alignment and knee-elbow connection and looking for levers, and I'm going to tra- trying to make frames and capitalize on engagement, and I'm going to be proactive, and I have definitely noticed moments where I recognize a lever and I can snag it, or an opportunity to break my opponent's posture and stifle his attempts to sweep or to attack me. But in the heat of the moment of the roll, it's a lot to remember and think about. I feel like a lot of opportunities to apply these concepts are flying by me. Is this an efficient and effective way to adopt these mm-hmm. concepts? Should I try to break it down further or just, or just continue to focus on these basics in this way and for a while just log lots more mat time until I miss fewer and fewer opportunities? Consider that my current class structure doesn't really allow for any FYJJ, meaning fuck your jiu-jitsu tra- drilling. We talked about that earlier. And in classes I'm able to attend, two are mostly technique drilling and two to three five-minute rolls at the end. And one class a week is around 40 minutes of seven to 10 minute rounds. So basically what this guy is saying at the end of the day, or girl, is there is a lot of content out there. It is hard to absorb all of this material. How do you take all of this information that you're able to dig from all of these different sources and actually work it into a structured approach that you can learn from on the mats? Now... I can definitely relate. Like, I, I feel content overload all the time. Not just in terms of jujitsu, but in terms of modern life. You know, we, Matt, when we were kids, it used to be that, like, there was one new video game coming out this fall, and everyone went out and bought Super Mario Brothers 3 and played it, and everyone loved it, and then it was, like, three months until the next big thing. But now, it's just a constant bombardment of yeah. awesome, high-quality instructional material, movies, podcasts, yeah. books, television shows. How can you get it all? Yeah, it, it's it's. <laughs> almost anxiety creating it's like that fear of time that you talked about earlier where you you constantly feel overwhelmed um i would suggest that the first thing you do is kind of invert that thinking and just accept the fact that you will never be able to watch and master everything out there that is normal that is okay you will never be unless you are like the terminator you're not going to be able to just watch a dvd immediately absorb everything and then go and just like be a beast on the mats the next day it takes years of drilling this stuff in to get proficient at it. Um, Now that said, maybe there are some ways that you can be more productive about it, but I would say the first thing to do is to not get so caught up in your own head where you're punishing yourself or feeling bad. Like, I mean, I've been training for 11, 12 years and I still miss opportunities on the mats. Like I'll be sparring and I I realize, oh, I just totally gave that up. Like it, it happens. That's the reason why very high level black belts lose, right? You know, no one is mistake free. We all miss opportunities. 
But the fact that you're identifying those opportunities means you're at least part of the way there. Yeah. Now it's just a matter of drilling and repetition and mat time to get to the point where this stuff becomes instinctual. Yeah, if you know that you're missing opportunities, then you, in a way, know what you can improve upon. I mean, I, I've been plugging Gordon's DVD now for a few episodes and it's like, <laughs> I'm only three chapters in. So I, I have that same feeling too, where it's like, and I got two kids, you know, we do the podcast, I got a school to run. It's like, am I ever going to have time to digest this whole instructional, let alone all the other instructionals that I have um, and I've invested in? It's, it, it, but Steve's absolutely right. Like if you, if you look at it in a negative way and you look at it uh, where you're actually kind of punishing and beating up yourself, like you're not learning because you don't have that time, um, like realistically, nobody has the time to do that unless you're unless you're Gordon Ryan and you're just watching footage all day. That's that's your job is just all day. Very few people have the ability to digest and actually apply the stuff that they see in, in all the instructionals that they buy in a real role. So I think I think I would just try and simplify it. Like you've already said, you're, ta- you're trying to apply alignment and levers and things like that. I think that's a great place to start. And just setting smaller goals for yourself is a great way to do it. So, you know, I, a goal that I'll, I'll have in classes, okay, I want to get to mount. And then when I get to mount, I want to hold mount. If I get a submission, awesome. Otherwise, I just want to hold mount. Like it can be that simple. It doesn't have to be like, Okay, I want to use this that I, I don't want to use this technique that I saw in, uh, in that uh, instructional. I want to use this technique. I want to use this. Just make it one goal. And then over time, incrementally, you should be able to develop, you know, more and more. And then as you feel like you understand, then you can apply a little bit more knowledge to your, to your, uh, to your roles and, and start to digest a few more instructionals. Like it, it's not something, you're not Neo, right? You're not plugging yourself in and then just uh, all of a sudden you've learned everything. It will take time and it is a digestion process that can take, it can honestly take years to, to fully apply a lot of these concepts. So I think that, like Steve said, the number one thing is don't feel overwhelmed to the point where your you know your cortisol levels rising and you are actually um, you know it, it's putting you in a negative place. Yeah, I think this is kind of the side effect of social media culture, which is everyone projects these images of how great they are. That you look around at this stuff and, and your immediate thought is, "Man, I'm so far behind." Yeah. And honestly, if you were to get inside the heads of ace competitors like Gordon Ryan, they would probably even tell you that they feel behind. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. there is no peak of maybe the not Gordon. Well, maybe not. Yeah, he, he <laughs> might tell you that he's a multimillionaire and he's just the greatest and if you hate on him on Instagram then you're an idiot but most other people would probably tell you that you know they don't feel like they've kind of hit the peak either I mean I remember um, I attended a seminar with Braulio Estimo one time and this was like just after he he won his big championship and he was saying like man some days I, I feel like a white belt on the mats you know you just come in and you just get murdered and I'm thinking man if this guy says that then I'm definitely in a pretty good spot you know because this is not much more common than I think we've been led to believe um it's important not to be hard on yourself and it's important to set goals that are ambitious but manageable and have a path forward. We've talked in the past about how it's important, you know, rather than just trying to like climb the mountain in one step, it's critical to set goals where you build good habits. You have, you know, you have a goal for today and maybe you have a long-term vision for where you want to go, but it's important that today I get done the thing that I want to get done. In the software world, we call this Kaizen. There's a whole, we've talked about this way way back on the podcast, but there's a whole methodology around making small continuous improvement. It's not about, you know, taking giant leaps and bounds every single day. That's just not possible. But what you do is you take small measurable steps. So every day, like Matt said, 
you have a goal. You don't want to have too many goals because you're never going to have them. And that goal needs to be something that realistically is like a step forward for you. Like Matt said, like today, my goal is to get to mount or today, my goal is to escape from bottom side control. And at the end of the day, you measure how well you did. You basically assess, you reflect, you can take notes if you find that helpful. And then next class, you set a goal again. And it's just one step forward every day. It's a, a process of I plan, I do, and then I measure. And then I plan and I do and I measure. And my hope is that every time I go through that loop, I'm able to just get a little bit better. I'm not trying to become like Einstein overnight. I just know that if I stick to it, there's going to be small improvements that are maybe so small that honestly, I don't even see them. But I assure you they are there. The problem that we have in jujitsu is while you're there training every day, getting better, so are your training partners. So the relative bar of skill is moving up to the point where it doesn't look like you're getting better, but you probably are. You know, when that new white belt comes into class and it's his first class and you smoke him, there's a reason why that happened. It's because you were making small incremental gains. I know it's hard to see this in the moment. It's like a, it's like speed relativity, right? If you're moving at the same speed as the car next to you, it might look like neither of you are moving, but in reality, you're both moving fast. So yeah. don't be so hard on yourself. Everyone has off days. Um, if, if your problem is plateaus, I hope that this episode has maybe given you some tools for that as well as the earlier episode we specifically did on overcoming plateaus. But just understand that no one can learn everything everything. There is an upper limit to how much knowledge our brains can process. Just be comfortable taking one step at a time. Yeah. Don't look, don't, don't focus on how far much, don't focus on how far you still have to go. Focus on how far you've come. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I think that was an interesting chat. I hope you guys found it helpful. Um, as always, Buy our stuff, bjjmentalmodels.com slash store. Get our emails, bjjmentalmodels.com slash join. Anything else you want to plug, Matt? No. Happy rolling, everyone. See you next time.